how we were raised. My father raised us with a depression era mentality and so did my mother, even though we had means. And so it's one of those things of like, in, in the elder bloodline, there's no excuses. Um, the women outperform the men. And so anytime I ever ran into adversity and had anxiety, or it might even been, I've been depressed before by my circumstances, what allowed me to tap into that resiliency was knowing that my worst day in life is better than my grandfather's best day. Welcome back to another episode, another podcast of Stand Out from the Inside, presented by Versity. Once again, I'm your host, Edgar Daggett. Thank you all for tuning in. If you're new, please subscribe. Go visit all of our other podcasts to find out a little bit more about the world of Versity, the world of donating. We're super excited. We have a great, great episode with you with somebody who I recently met. Amazing person, amazing story that I can't wait for all of you to hear. He comes from the Midwest as well, from the Milwaukee region, right now residing in Chicago, Illinois, the big windy city. This person has an interesting story from where he started, where he grew up, to what he's doing now. His name is Jamie Elder. He is super cool. I want to welcome him to the Stand Out From The Inside podcast. Jamie, welcome. Hey, Edgar. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you for blessing me with this opportunity to be here today and speak with your audience. No, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. I really, you know, as we start off this podcast, I want everybody to hear your experience, to hear your journey, because you are amazing. So from what I've heard from from the time that I've met you, you know, an amazing story, amazing opportunity that I want to give all of my viewers, all of my subscribers to enjoy. But, you know, before we even get started with that, I have to talk. So you're from Illinois or you're right now living in Illinois, correct? Yes, sir. I live from Milwaukee, but I live in Chicago. Did you get hit with that massive storm on Sunday? <laughs> I I was yeah, it, it, the storm. I don't think the storm came through here. I mean, we've had snowfall, but nothing's like really like accumulated. Oh no! Then you're lucky because here in Michigan, you know, being in Arbor, I look outside on that Sunday morning. Everything's covered in white. I was like, "What the heck is this?" And I've been saying it from the beginning, from the summer. This winter's going to be brutal. And when I look out that window, I'm like, what is this? I felt like summer just happened. And then it flew by. It was like hot. Now the days are getting dark at, I think I, yesterday, 514, it was dark. I was like, guys, I can't do this. I can't, I can't be waking up maybe a little bit daytime and then go right. And as soon as I get out of work, it's dark. I can't be doing this. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, like I was, was going to tell you that. Like, we probably got two hours to record because about 430, this is going to be pitch black in here. Oh, why do you think I have so many lights here? It's not because, you know, I want you to see me clearly. It's because it's dark outside. And if I didn't have these lights, you wouldn't be able to see me. So I really appreciate you being here. I wanted to get, you know, I wanted to start off this by sharing your story. Sharing before we even get involved about how we, Versity and yourself and your organizations, your companies have helped the community and how we can bring the communities together. I want the viewers and the subscribers to hear a little bit about your story because I loved your story. I love the passion behind it. 
and I wanted to know, and I wanted to get them to know a little bit about you mm-hmm. and what you're doing today. So I'm going to give you the stage. I'm going to let you share your story. And I'm super excited to uh, let the viewers out hear it. Gotcha. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, thank you for doing this, man. It's just like, I know everybody in this world has a story. So I'm always honored to share mine. And if it means something to somebody else, that's always great. Uh, but like you said, uh, you know, my name is Jamie Elder. Um, I've lived in five cities in five years, well, five and a half. So, you know, born and raised in Milwaukee, um, moved to DC for a minute. I was in Baltimore, Fort Wayne, and now I live in Chicago and half time I spent in Dallas. So in the last five years alone, I, I like to say, I, I moved twice for the money and twice for a honey. And so this current move, I definitely moved for money. And that's where I'm at today. But how I got here, I'm simply like a lot of people, like millions of people, I'm a product of the Midwest migration. Uh, so my father, you know, originally from Memphis, Tennessee, my mother from Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, my father was born, uh, you know, to my grandfather, whose name was Owen Washington, Abraham Lincoln, John Winston Trice Elder. Uh, he was born January 26, 1865. So he was born a slave in uh, Arkansas. And so it's I'm always, so anytime I'm faced with various obstacles, I always remember how much my family have to work and sacrifice for me to be here. And so when he moved to Memphis, which back then was a, a refugee camp for slaves, uh, my father started out there, you know, when my, fa- my grandfather died when he was 16, he left my father $6. So by the time my father, you know, went through the Great Depression, went to World War II, uh, he ended up moving to Milwaukee because his brother lived in Racine, my uncle, O.W., and he said, Chicago's too big, Racine's too small, let me settle on Milwaukee. Uh, so he's worked 40 years at A.L. Smith. And you know, this is probably a whole other podcast, but there's always big age gaps between the men and women in my family. So mm-hmm. 30 year age gap between my father and mother. So my mother's born in 1951, my father born in 1921. Uh, so when he met one in the seventies, uh, I got two older sisters, I was born in 82. And again, you know, my father worked hard at A.L. Smith. Uh, he only missed, had five, six days. And so he took $6 his grandfather gave him and turned to a multi-six-figure estate. Uh, so I had all the privileges and luxuries of being like, a, I guess, a hood rich kid. But, you know, because of what happened in the Midwest, like many other cities, uh, especially in Milwaukee, was that, that and the combination of industrial decline, uh, the crack epidemic. Uh, we had a large influx of a lot of low income and a lot of violent a crime that came from Chicago into Milwaukee because we're the largest city in the world Correct. within 80 miles of Chicago. Um, so, you know, as a black kid, I got caught up in that. Um, so by the time I was in high school, you know, going to my junior, probably senior year of high school, I was like a 2.3 GPA student at Rufus King, which was known as like a top 100 high school in the country left at that time. But, um, you know, I wasn't college bound. My father said, you got four options, either college, career, uh, go to the military, go to jail, but pick one. And we had a strong 18 and out rule. Both my sisters were gone by the time they, you know, turned 18 and they were going to apply the same thing to their son. And so I basically said, you know what, I'm on my way to jail. I need to do something else in life. And one day, you know, I got a call from a Sergeant Moore from the United States Army. Uh, it was a recruiter. I thought it was somebody from called from the police station because I wasn't running the streets with my friends to be like in trouble. I wasn't trying to be an actual gang member and like, you know, go to jail, write a do a mixtape about it. I was doing it as a playboy thug. I was doing it to get girls on the cool. And so the idea of me actually getting in real trouble was like, nah, I need to do something else. So when I got I had that scared straight moment thinking that the police department's on to some of our activities, that's when, you know, I picked up the call. 
I took the opportunity to listen to the United States Army as a 74 Bravo uh, information system operator analyst, or as everybody said, a computer geek. And so, you know, that's seen my senior year. I graduated. I went to the Army in August. And then a lot of my friends I ran up with, I learned after the fact, got locked up on drug charges. And so I was really close to being like a black stat, right? Another negative statistic uh, that we always hear when you talk about the lowest common denominator of the black and brown community, especially as applies to young men. And so basically I had a six year contract in the army. Uh, my father died after my second year, he was 80 years old. You know, he just had a lot of health issues because he didn't take good care of himself, you know, probably the first 65, 70 years of his life, uh, which is why I think this podcast is important. So he probably would still be here today to celebrate his hundredth birthday with us. But unfortunately he passed away 20 years ago. But, you know, I took my heritage that he left me and I said, you know, I don't want to work 40 years in the factory like my father did, plus his job didn't even exist anymore. And I knew I wouldn't, I didn't have a career in the army, definitely not as a computer help desk person. And so I kept, I taught myself the stock market. I basically started reading a bunch of books about business and entrepreneurship. And I read this one, uh, I think a Money Magazine article or uh, Inc. Magazine article where it said, 80% of multimillionaires attributed their wealth to business investment or ownership. So I said, I want to go buy a business. Or I want to invest in a business. Uh, and I had, you know, coming from the hood, I didn't have anybody who were, could be a mentor to me. I didn't have any, nobody in my social network was remotely related to owning a business or investing in a business. So it was kind of something I had to teach myself uh, just through reading uh, what I could find on the internet. And then just pure hustle. Uh, so I bought my first company when I was 21, a 1-800-Guy Junk franchise. It was the first in the state of Wisconsin. At the now that's an international company. Back then, they were just in two. They were in Toronto, Vancouver, and they're like uh, 30 U.S. Uh, cities. Uh, so I ran that for a couple of years, uh, let it go. Uh, that started my first company, Landlord Concierge, which is uh, my first startup, Landlord Concierge. We did real estate services for small and medium-sized landlords. Uh, I ran that till 2008. When the market crash and back then they didn't have all these business accelerator programs and everything to help you you know identify your market and how to protect your cash flow how to do better marketing like i had to do it on the fly so by the time we found our marketplace uh we had too much cash burn and uh you know when the recession hit it just took us out uh, so i got back in the workforce uh ended up at 360 direct a marketing firm uh, where I met again, uh, incredible Nicole Nimmer. We're st- uh, sorry, Nicole Agan. She got married. Uh, we're still friends to this day. She's how I got plugged into this opportunity to you know, be in this podcast today. And then, you know, I was there four years, just grinding away, doing sales support and business development for the organization. And through my contacts I made as a business owner um, in 2012, I knew uh, Reggie Newsom, who uh to this day i thank him because he put my uh, i wouldn't be here today if he didn't give me the opportunity to listen to me one day in the governor's conference room in milwaukee back in 2011 where i said even though that this the cities has war with the state because of act 10 and what governor walker was doing and that it was like you know milwaukee versus the st- uh, milwaukee madison versus the state and liberals versus uh conservatives and republicans versus democrats I just said, there's an opportunity for me to work with somebody I know to be able to get resources and programs and policies that will help increase outcomes, social economic outcomes in the inner city of Milwaukee, especially for black and brown people. Uh, so I took on that uh, meeting with uh, Reggie for about 45 minutes. Uh, he said he liked my ideas about economic development, social, uh, social programs and entrepreneurship in Milwaukee Central City. And he just said, do, do a white paper about it. So I did a white paper. He took it. He passed around administration. I got a call a few months later from Secretary Eloise Sanderson from the Wisconsin Department of Children and Families saying she wanted to appoint me. Uh, 
I wasn't I wasn't married, didn't have any kids. I had no idea why he wanted to bring a 29-year-old black kid, a single black bachelor up to the state government to work in like basically the what I looked at as like the the child, you know, the child care agency. Um, but you know, that whole experience changed my life because by that time I was always about like this market-driven, capitalist-driven type of entrepreneur. Uh, that really allowed me to take a more clinical approach to how I do how I do my type of business. And I take me I take a lot more social approach to how I do business. Uh, and my whole goal while working with Department of Children and Families as the appointed director of Office of Urban Development was as she, as she outlined the mission was uh, look at the needs, uh, look at the barriers to uh, employment for black and brown fathers in Milwaukee help reduce them, look at the needs of the labor of the business community, of how they employ, make the connection. And also, how do we diversify Milwaukee's economy through entrepreneurship? And then more importantly, this is something I added, was that um, back then we were looking at fatherhood programs, and I was going to this one meeting where I got to hear 100 Black boys in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee talk about their challenges. It's like, we, we keep you know labeling them as uh, unruly and violent as dis and disruptive, but we never listened to them like, what was triggering that behavior. So at this uh, forum that was held at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Wisconsin, we allowed them to speak and we just listened. And I heard child after child get up there and sound uh, and give the same testimony that I would have given at their age. And I realized that too often in society, and we still do it, uh, we look at children uh, and we say, hey, we challenged them to become people they don't even know exist. So we're saying, why don't you go to school and be Get your college degree. Well, it's like I never met anybody who went to college, so I don't see the value in a college degree. Or why don't you become a doctor or a lawyer? Like I never met a doctor or a lawyer other than in passing in a in a in a in a situation where the power dynamic wasn't healthy. Like I was I was hurt and injured in the hospital, or I was brought up on charges, or I was involved with somebody's brought up on charges. Like, well, I want to be something like something that's hurting me. And so that's where I created a program about social education to where I wanted to get these kids exposed to people. I had been exposed to who had helped uh, increase my aspirations and who had not just said, hey, Jamie, speak, I'm going to speak life into you, but I'm also going to like point you in the right direction and so you can um, get those resources, opportunities, so you can overcome your own barriers and develop your own uh, self-sufficiency. And so, you know, I did that for four and a half years, just some incredible things, met some incredible people. Um, but by 2016, I was burning out. Uh, doing that job, and I was appointee. I knew my time was going to come to a close, and so one day I was reading, you know, I think NBCNews.com or something, and they were talking about how Charles Koch, uh, you know, the multi-billionaire, one of the uh, owners of, uh, we'll see, you know, one of the leaders of Coke Industries, was going to create a foundation that would invest in community impact and how to and reduce poverty across the country. And I tell people all the time, like I thought it was a joke. You know, I, it wasn't even political. It's just that I just didn't think. Somebody, you know, a white, a white rich man from Kansas knew anything about North Side of Milwaukee. So it didn't matter how much money he would spend, he would not be able to solve our issues. Um, so I blind applied thinking like, okay, I'm going to interview them while they're interviewing me and I'm going to tell them how wrong they are about their approach. Uh, but I went to DC and I clicked uh, at that time was with Evan and Lauren, uh, people who brought me on. And with, so three months later, they hired me. So in August 2016, I went to DC, became the one of the directors of strategic partnerships for Stand Together Foundation. Uh, my whole portfolio was all the Midwestern states, Dallas, Fort Worth, San Diego, California, and then Somerset, New Jersey. And over two years, I got to travel the country and then basically take this philosophy of if we had 
a limited resources in terms of financial, uh, organizational development and capacity building, storytelling and marketing. If we took those same resources that we give like the Facebooks of the world and Google of the world and all these entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, what if we deployed those same resources into uh, social entrepreneurs, innovators at who lead community organizations? And like, what would be their outcomes? Could they scale up and could they Im uh, impact more lives? And can we actually start moving the needle on some of the uh, issues of systemic poverty. So I did that for two years, uh, traveled like 200,000 miles a year. I had 30 different organizations I work with, uh, some of the biggest ones. Again, RIP is like my brother, uh, Bishop Omar Jawar was an anti-lucky. Uh, they were my biggest successes, urban specialists down in Dallas. Uh, I work with you know the, the uh, NFL Hall of Famer, Deion Sanders, still doing big things. Definitely also like a brother to me, uh, worked on his $21 million Prime 5 campaign where we raised the money and reinvested back in DFW. Uh, worked across Milwaukee, Pearls for Teen Girls, uh, with you know Jerry Howells, who's you know, again praying for her. She's dealing with cancer right now. But it's an incredible people. Uh, but you know, because that was just taking a toll on me physically and also my relationship, because of my then girlfriend at the time, uh, she's a physician, she was a smart one between us. Uh, she, she took the more linear approach to success. Uh, she got an opportunity to do a fellowship uh, at Johns Hopkins. Um, and so we, I left DC, left standing together with the Hopkins. Uh, I'm sorry, I went to Baltimore. We was there for a year. And then she got a job at Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I'm kind of wearing a shirt right now. So representing Fort Wayne. Um, and then, you know, we moved here, came back to the Midwest, lower cost of living. She's by her family. I'm by my family. I'm by, you know, Milwaukee, which I care about. You know, I was there for two years working at Ambassador uh, Enterprises. So at Ambassador Enterprises, again, I was fortunate uh, working with Kristen and Doug and Gerald Doden brought me on their team that kind of do urban development across Northeast Indiana. But they also, that's where I also learned how to do private equity at a level I can understand. So even though I was in proximity to Coke Industries, I didn't know how to acquire a multi-billion dollar company and grow it. But you know, working at Ambassador Enterprises, we're talking about $10 million and up companies. I was like, oh, this is something I get my mind around. But you know, unfortunately, I got, got laid off through the COVID there, you know, uh, like a lot of people did across the country, unfortunately. But I was blessed to have you know, enough savings. And you know, he was uh, generous in his severance package. And I said at that time, uh, if I could go anywhere in the world and do anything, where would I go and what would I do? And it's rare that people have the opportunity to like really think that critically at my age. You know, I was only 38 years old, still wasn't married, no kids. And it took me a while, but I said, you know what? I probably want to go to Chicago and I want to go with my partners, John McKeel, uh, and also Ice and McCoy, great friends, also my two business partners. And I said, I want to start an impact private equity firm because all of us have uh, what, what brings us together, our shared vision and values is that we all believe in community change and community transfer, transformation. Uh, and we've also shared the idea that we've been really good at making uh, other people really, really wealthy. And so the thing is, we just said, hey, you know, we're probably at a place in our lives that we didn't want to no longer work, work for benevolent millionaires and billionaires. We wanted to become one. Uh, so that way, as we were, we had to go more upstream to solve the problems we cared about because we can broker relationships, the community organizations, the social entrepreneurs, uh, who can try to like uh, to our to people who have wealth and means and the corporations and the foundations and the philanthropists. But the problem we saw is that we couldn't write the check ourselves, and so there's a lot. And so that was part of the problem was how funding investment was being deployed, not just how it was being executed. So. 
to solve that problem, we created I2J Group, uh, our, our own impact investment firm. So right now we're acquiring companies across the uh, small businesses across the country. Um, we want to grow them in place. So we want to preserve those companies, preserve the jobs that exist in those communities. And then eventually we want to grow the companies enough that we have enough profits that we can start reinvesting back in the community impact, whether it takes five years, 10 years, 20 years from now. Uh, that's our long-term goal. And so it's kind of like, you know, for us, it's like we believe in capitalism. We just want to have capitalism with a purpose and be more intentional about how we can have, it can be mutually beneficial for everybody in society. And our first acquisition was a home improvement company in Dallas. So I spent half my time in Chicago, half my time in Dallas. And then, you know, what we, it's called Surface Pro. So we focus on it's the selling and installing floors, countertops, cabinets, and showers. And so far, so good. It's like our first one, and we're excited to see where it goes. And you know, again, if this doesn't work, we keep trying something else. Thank you for sharing. That is amazing. I hope you guys enjoyed. Hope all of you guys enjoyed that story that he gave up about his life. And I want to hit to hit a couple of topics around it because you've been hit. Like there's been times where you know from your childhood you've been down, but you always you know came across. You always you know, rose to, to the occasion. You always got up. You were hit again with COVID being laid off. You took a step back. You were like, what am I going to do? Um, whether it took you a week, a month, you said three months, um, it could take a year, but you found something that you liked and you pursued it. And that's what's amazing. And what I want to reach out is because I want to know what was that culture like being young? So you said you had families that were born in 1865. <laughs> which is the last year of the Civil War. The mm -hmm. Civil War went 1861 through 65. And what did that, what did that like history within your family, what effect did that have on your, on your life at, as you were growing up? And does any of that effect still live within you right now? Yeah, I, I would say daily. Um, I was, again, this is where I was probably blessed. And, you know, people, sometimes I think we overgeneralize like, oh, what's the, what's the importance of, a two-parent home or having a father in the household, stuff like that. Um, you know, I can't speak to every particular situation because like LeBron James, he more than exceeded everybody's expectations. Uh, born in Akron in Ohio, yep. Exactly. Excellent. So he was born to a single mother, right? Uh, I don't know if I could have done it with a single parent because um, what happened in my situation is that I look at how my mother just left home at 18 years old, was, you know, pretty much had nothing, started at the very, very bottom. And then, you know, she was winning awards for volunteering, you know, in the 90s. I was growing up for being a teacher's aide. And then, of course, my father, who's his, his lineage is easier to track, uh, you know, because we, I go to Memphis right now, look at even my great-grandfather's tombstone in 1842. And the thing about it is, is that how we were raised, my father raised us with a Depression-era mentality, and so did my mother, even though we had means. And so it's one of those things of, like, in, in the elder bloodline, there's no excuses. Um, the women outperform the men. And so anytime I ever ran into adversity and had anxiety, or it might even been, I've been depressed before by my circumstances, what allowed me to tap into that resiliency was knowing that my worst day in life is better than my grandfather's best day. Mm -hmm. uh, because again, I, I have the freedom of choice in many cases to do something different, to go in a different direction, to change my circles, to change my opportunities. He didn't. His options were limited to what he could get on that plantation and the people who, um, and whatever the master would give him. 
And even when he had freedom, you know, which was most of his life, again, he was born a slave, but most of his, his life, he probably remembered being free, but they were still living in a one bedroom, uh, one, one room house, no plumbing, no electricity, and they were still sharecropping. So my father picked cotton as a kid, and he would tell me the horrific stories of what it would like to be a black man in the South. And uh, yeah, have I experienced racism? Yeah. I've never experienced racism where I'm a you know five-year-old kid riding my bike across a bridge to work every day at a candy store. And every single day, five five white kids are chasing me across the bridge saying, if we catch you anywhere, we're going to kill you. That was his existence wow. growing up. And so for me, it's just like, yeah, I run into problems all the time. But then I look at it and say, like, you know what? Um, my grandfather died not knowing that was possible. Mm-hmm. Like, I get, I get, I have the opportunity right now. Like, right now as we're talking, I'm looking at the Sears Tower. Like, that's my view every day I wake up in my apartment. He never saw a skyscraper in his entire life. My grandfather did. And my father, you know, he lived in Milwaukee. He never went to the 40th floor of the U.S. Bank building, which is the tallest building in Wisconsin. I used to go there for meetings all the time uh, when I was with people in Milwaukee. And so I just have to recognize my privilege. And I know that's weird to say as a black person, I have privilege, but I do because I have the privilege of uh, being the offspring of my, of, of, and benefiting from the, uh, the everything, all the opportunities that my father, my mother, my grandfather, my sisters, and everybody have created for me. And so the only thing I need to do is take these opportunities, grow them, and then pass them along to my nieces and nephews. And if I'm blessed, and my own children at some point in time. And most importantly, I want to be able to pass them to other people uh, out there in society who may not have the same opportunities. And, you know, we have to say thanks that we have all these opportunities now that, you know, a lot of people didn't have in the past. And just being able to wake up in the morning and be have that ability to be like, I don't want to, I'm done doing what I, what I did yesterday. I can do, what else am I going to do? What mm-hmm. can I do? Oh, I can do everything. Let me, let me pick. Oh, you have now options and <laughs> you have all these available options in your life that uh, give you the opportunity to either better yourself, to improve your life, to exceed, to make you happy. You know, we have all these opportunities. So I wanted to know a little bit more about the culture within growing up. You know, times have passed, you know, as we go along through our life, you know, our our influences, our outside forces uh, affect the way we think, the way we do, the way we believe. And I'm assuming it being in Wisconsin, it's a lot of a different, it's a whole different feeling, different environment than being in Wisconsin today. So I want to know a little bit about what was like being in Wisconsin back in the day and what was like your childhood like uh, that affected you today? Yeah, that's funny. It's like, I I tell people all the time, um, it's it's like my, so Eloise Anderson, my boss, she was a cultural anthropologist, right? So a lot of so a lot of times uh, we don't look at the clinical way of how societies are laid out. So we kind of look at things, we look at modern day Milwaukee. We say Milwaukee's segregated because all the blacks live over here and all the whites live over here and all the Latinos are over here predominantly. Same thing with Chicago. And then you know, we don't understand that a lot of that how people settled in the Midwest mm-hmm. is kind of, we kind of settled the way old Europe was settled. It was like Polish here, Italians here, uh, Germans over here. And then as African-Americans migrated up along with Latinos, it's kind of like, well, we all, you know, all the people from Europe already said, we found our neighborhood, you need to go find your own. But how it, you know, played out and just, you know, horrifically was just that it settled into like segregation with severe economic consequences uh, because, you know, the boom era had like died by the time we settled. So when I was growing up, you know, again, it was it, the, middle, the the good times in Milwaukee, my father experienced post-World War II, 
was, you know, dying. By the time I was, you know, 10 years old, like I said, it was like Miller is not going to employ the same amount of people they did before. All these uh, beer factories, Blatt's, Schlitz and all that, they were wiped out. For me, I always tell people all the time, I say, I hear, all the, I hear people say, uh, if you're, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. And I say, that's a lie. If you can make it from places like Milwaukee, you can make it anywhere because I grew up in a, in a city where the entire, not just entire city, but the entire state had low expectations of me because of my race and my place. Uh, and definitely my, and also my gender. And not only did they have low expectations of young black and brown males, we had low expectations of ourselves because I can tell you to this, I mean, it's, it's changing today, but when I was growing up, it was, it was simple. Like you're black, do not cross to the South. Don't go past Michigan Avenue to the North. Don't go past Brown Deer Road to the East. Do not go past the river and to the West. Do not go past 124th street. That was my entire world for the first 18 years of my life. And so if this is pre-internet, right? So pre-social media. And so whatever I experienced and whatever, all my development came from whatever I can learn from that box. And so the most important thing that happened for me was going to the military because as crazy as it sounds, like I remember when I was working in the army, I was working for the chief of staff in Fort Gordon, Georgia. That's the first time I ever met like, uh, and uh, I met the Israeli liaison. And he was talking about Israel and, you know, uh, give me an idea about, you know, the Jewish people, how we got settled. And for me, it was like, I heard of Jewish people. I didn't know any. Uh, if I had known some, I didn't know they were Jewish. I definitely didn't know there was a combination between, uh, there was a connection between uh, the Jewish faith and Israel. And then I'm just like, yo, I got a whole country. It's like, I, you know, my whole life, I was told like World War II, like, you know, Hitler killed, you know, six million people. Like, how do y'all, how do y'all millions of, how do millions of Jewish people still exist? Yeah. I had no clue because I had never left the north side of Milwaukee and I'd never been exposed to like Jewish people like you would in maybe New York if you're going to certain communities and other places across the country. And so that stunted my development in many ways. So that's definitely my social development, but doing business opened it back up because I was like, I don't care how much a person hates me. If they tell me I have to go join the chamber of commerce, I have to go join that group, I have to go join that group. I don't care how many white people are in there. If I have to go there to be successful, I'll always win in those rooms. So more than anything else, my social network has been the greatest advantage I've had in life so far. And the fact that uh, segregation was bad, I felt like self-segregation is worse and I refuse to self-segregate. And so now when I go back to Milwaukee, I, see, I can see the differences between my friends who are saying like, you know what? We got to get outside this box on the north side. Like we got to experience not just not just the region, not just the state, not just the country. We got to start experiencing the world. We, we we can't make it seem like traveling to Atlanta is like our life's goal, or going to uh, Miami is our life's goal. Like we have to understand, like we live in a global economy. We have to experience not just different races of people. We have to experience different cultures within our same race. And that's when I got going to D.C. I got to hear black people who spoke different languages and had different cultures, not just what I thought black method was. And so that's the biggest, so even now when I come back, when I leave different places I travel to, that's more vibrant, more diverse, and go back to Milwaukee, it's really that culture shock to where a lot of people just say, they, they kind of hang on to some of these things that I hung on to as a child, like, and have these limited ideas and beliefs about what's possible being black and what's possible being black from Milwaukee.
No, no, that's amazing. So that diversity, you know, people getting outside of those roots is what kind of shaped you. Hope you guys are enjoying this, but this is a two-part podcast with Jamie. Catch up on the second part coming out next week where we'll be talking and diving deeper onto how Jamie is affecting the community and being involved in the community. This is the Stand Up From The Inside podcast presented by Versity. I'm your host, Edgar Daggett, and we will see you all next week.